Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. We are excited today uh, to get to worship together, get to be together, to hear about new opportunities. We're also excited um, to jump right back into our walk with Jesus. Uh, You may not know this. I don't know how long you've been here, but if you've been here for the entirety of the way, you've been here for like 30 years. Um, We started this series uh, a long time ago. Uh, We started this back July 2020 when we were unsure where the world was going. And we started it just to kind of catch you up because we were in and are still in a world and a country and an environment where there feels like there's hostility coming from so many different angles. There was division and hostility. And what we decided back in July of last year was it was important for us to figure out not um, how we respond to our modern context, but how did Jesus respond to the hostility of his day? And then if we can glean lessons from there, we can learn what the character of Christ looks like, then we can walk through our own hostile days, whatever those look like, whatever those forces might be, in a more Christ-like manner. And so the question that we would ask when we say, how do we walk through our modern hostile world? We would say, well, how did Jesus do it? And let's do it like him. And so that's what we're doing. And that's what this whole series is about today. We pick up the story in Luke chapter 18. And I'll simply begin to read there in verse one. Scripture says, Jesus told them a story showing that it was necessary for them to pray consistently and never quit. He said, There was once a judge in some city who never gave God a thought and cared nothing for people. And now a widow in that city, a widow in that city kept after him. My rights are being violated. Protect me, she said. He never gave her the time of day. But after this went on and on, he said to himself, I care nothing what God thinks, even less what people think. But because this widow won't quit badgering me, I'd better do something and see that she gets justice. Otherwise, I'm going to end up beaten black and blue by her pounding. Then the master said, do you hear what that judge, corrupt as he is, is saying? What makes you think that God won't step in and work justice for his chosen people who continue to cry out for help? Won't he stick up for them? Jesus says, I assure you, He will. He will not drag his feet. But how much of that kind of persistent faith will the Son of Man find on the earth when he returns? So last September, as part of this series, we went through Luke 11, and in there is the the Lord's Prayer, the teach us how to pray moment. The disciples say, teach us how to pray. So that was sort of the how, and if you go, how do I pray? I would say maybe go back to the, the archives and and look through that. You can read Luke 11 and, and learn how to pray. What we're learning today is more of the why to pray. And we're introduced to a widow. I don't want you to miss this. We're introduced to this widow. So maybe mark that down because this chapter, as we go through it for the next several weeks, will show us four marginalized people, four people at the bottom of the social ladder. There's a widow and a blind beggar. There's a tax collector and a child. These people have no power, no influence, no real rights in that culture. And we're also going to meet a rich official someone quite respectable in the culture. And what we're going to notice in the weeks to come is that the marginalized and the disreputable people are praised by Jesus. 
and the respectable in the culture are called to account. Today, we get to focus on the widow. Luke says that there's a, the story is being told to illustrate that we should pray consistently and never quit. The, the author of this gospel, Luke, the physician, says the story Jesus tells right here about this widow is, is so that we would know what it means to pray consistently and never quit. That's the point. That's the summary. So, so he's answering the question, when we get no response, just keep praying? When we get met with silence, we just keep praying? And, and the answer to that is yes, pray consistently and never quit. Now, in order to get there and figure out why we would do that, why would I dare do that? We have to acknowledge first that, uh, as Eugene Peterson would say, people who pray are deeply experienced in God's silence. If you've been through something difficult and you've asked God to make a move in your life, if you ask God to, to intervene in your circumstances, and there are times when there is no response, this rings true to you. The people who pray are deeply experienced in God's silence. This extends back to the psalmist. In Psalm 10, we read, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In Psalm 44, Awake, why are you sleeping, Lord? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and our oppression? Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, I find no rest. These are people who, who ask why. The psalmist is asking why. And the answer is silence. Just four verses, seven times the word why, and no response. There is very little in our culture that is as disheartening as silence in response to our cries. This is true in your daily life in trivial things, when you are still forced on some level to call customer service, and they don't have your answers. And they say a lot of words, but there's really silence because they don't have an answer for you all the way to major things, like going through a major medical event and having no diagnosis at the end. Some of you know what my wife and I have been working through that. She has had a gastrointestinal drama, we'll say, for a couple of years now. And we've been walking through various different stages of it, tried 612 different diets, maybe this pill, maybe that regiment, maybe this thing, maybe that other, this kind of scope, that kind of scope, trip to the hospital, stay in the hospital, out of the hospital, back to the hospital. And so for two years, we've been saying, okay, what is it though? And the answer to the question currently is a shrug. We don't really know. There's no real answers. And so two years of our lives and $50,000 in medical bills later, the doctors go, oh, see if we can manage it together. But we, we can't really tell you what it is. I was well prepared for this. Part of my story, as you may know, is I donated a lung to my sister in a transplant 21 years ago now. And so giving away your lung is sort of a thing. I was invested in her care and her journey, and she spent 15 years with an ailment that was called, people always, they're, they're generous to me when we tell that story, when someone finds out, oh, you don't have a lung, tell me more about that. Can you breathe right now? And I'm like, well... There's a, there's a series of questions we go through. People are like, are you like, are you okay? And I go, well, I could really use $20. That would help, but it doesn't. 
I just feel short of breath. Um, people will eventually get to, when they're comfortable enough to ask, they'll say, well, can I ask what she had? Like, what did she have? What was her diagnosis? And the actual diagnosis, I'm always sorry to report, was nonspecific interstitial pneumonitis, which is a doctor's medical equivalent of saying, we don't know, but something's wrong. It's as if uh, you got in a car accident and the police officer came and sorted it all out and they said, okay, well, who caused it? And the police officer went, car crash. That's what she had. She had, I don't know. We, we don't know. Did you check for, yes. Did she look, yes. Are you sure it wasn't? Yes. 15 years. She struggled and eventually succumbed to a medical shoulder shrug. The thing about silence in response to our cries, the thing about no response when we ask why, is it is not an invitation to stop seeking. Failing to get a diagnosis doesn't mean you pack up your things and go home and wait for the end. You, you keep pushing, you keep seeking. It's permission in a sense. Silence is your permission to continue on without answer. Silence is your permission to be content in silence while you persist in pursuit of new hope in everything. To return something at Costco or to deal with the new medical thing you've been handed, your invitation is to persist. And if you get no response, if you have no diagnosis, if you don't get it returned, whatever, you can keep going even if it's going to fail because that's all you can do. But we've become disillusioned when it feels like the larger world doesn't hear us. When we get no answers, when our why, like the psalmist, when our why is met with silence, what we typically do is just power down because it seems that the powers that be don't hear us anymore. You look around the culture in the last few years, people say, why are we more divided? Why are we more violent? Why is there more unrest? Why are there riots? Why are there protests? Why? Why? I actually think I have an answer to that, and I think it's because every single segment of our society, left, right, black, white, every segment of our society has an aggrieved spirit because every single segment of our society feels like they are marginalized and not being heard. People who have been traditionally, historically marginalized feel like their voice has never been heard. People who used to be in power and feel like that power is slipping away feel like they're not being heard. People on every side of every angle feel like there's no one advocating for me. And so we fight. Identity politics from every angle is fueled by the fear that our power is slipping away or that we never had it to begin with. So when the powers that be just ignore us, we have learned to say, why fight it? It's not going to change anything. So when you pray and you get no response, you're now conditioned to go, why pray? He doesn't talk back. There's two things happening here with this widow that we encounter. There's two things. She has two things. First thing is the widow believes that the judge has the power to change things. The widow believes that the judge has the power to change things. And the widow also believes that there's an urgency to her case. So she has belief and urgency on her side. When we pray, we believe that the hearer can intercede on our behalf. But we only pray when we believe that. We pray when we believe that the hearer of our prayers can intercede on our behalf, and we pray when we have enough urgency to persist. I'll explain it this way. We have our building here inspected annually. We have to do a fire inspection every year. They come through, they check the fire 
alarms. They make sure your extinguisher is where they're supposed to be. They run a little test. They, they do the things. So, so we call the fire department, Bowling Green Fire Department, we call them, hi, can you come and do our annual fire inspection? And they say, yeah, we're a little busy. We'll get to it next week. To which we say, cool, thanks, see ya. We believe they can do this inspection, though. We, we don't call Capus Poly Eyes and go, hey, would you like to do a fire inspection for us? Why? While delicious, we don't believe they can actually get us certified for another year of occupancy. So we call who we believe in, okay? Belief determines direction. Your belief determines your direction. So we call Bowling Green Fire Department, and they say, we'll call you back, and we say, that's cool, and we move on, and it all gets done. No worries. It's just an inspection. So keep this in your mind. Belief determines your direction. Now let's change the urgency of the situation. Now let's say, right now, let's say the church is on fire and filling with smoke. And we call Bowling Green Fire Department. Hello, Bowling Green Fire Department. We believe that you guys are the guys to come and put the fire out. To which they would say, well, what if they said, we're a little busy right now. Can we see to it next week? What would we say? No, no, I don't think you understand. <laughs> Somebody just gave the pastor $20. He only has one lung and the smoke is really getting to him. We need you to come now. And they would say, well, are you sure? And we would continue, you know, stop, drop, and roll, and we're doing the crawl thing, and they're screaming everywhere, and we go, yeah, yeah, we think it's a good idea. And they would come now. Why? Because your urgency fuels persistence. So two things happen when we go any direction for help. Your belief determines the direction. Who you call is dependent on who you believe can solve the problem. And your persistence is driven by your urgency. If it's not urgent, you ask once and move along. So belief determines direction. Urgency fuels your persistence. Is this not true of the way that we pray? Do you believe that the God of the universe is concerned about you and active in the world around you? If you don't believe that, I don't think you are a praying person. Because why would you pray if he can't change anything? People say, I want to pray more. I want to be more faithful. I, I want to believe this. How do I grow in prayer? People ask me, how do I grow in prayer? For a long time, I think we, uh, we tried to offer strategies or here's this training thing or here if you learn more about it, and it's none of those things. Jesus is days away as we pick up this story. He is days away from leaving his disciples. They are on their way to Jerusalem. He is days away from the cross. He's already taught them how to pray, and so this story is teaching them why to pray. How do I grow in prayer? I don't think it's a how question. I think it's a why question. Growing in prayer is not about improving our faithfulness, but recognizing God's faithfulness. Say it again. Growing in prayer is not about improving our faithfulness, but recognizing God's faithfulness. We don't fail to pray because we're not faithful people. We fail to pray because we don't believe that God can change the things that we have going on in our lives. Because if we believed that, we would pray. So, so becoming better at prayer is not about becoming better at prayer. It's about recognizing that the God of the universe is interested in your life, that the God of the universe wants to intercede in your days, that the God of the universe is measuring your every breath and wants to be a part of your next move and your next step that he is here with you now 
and we're in it together. You call the fire department because they alone can save your house. And so as we grow in trust and in recognition that God's faithfulness to rescue us is real, we call on him more. We're ever more inclined to pray as we begin to see his faithfulness at work in our lives. And then in stark contrast to that, we see how powerless we really are to change things. I can go grab the hose from the side of the building and try to put the fire out. I can't do it. I'd like to think I can do it. I'd like the control to do it. I'd like to feel like I can do it, but I can't do it. I got to call somebody who has the power I don't have. So if you want to grow in prayer, if you say, I wish I was a praying person, I'd love to grow in prayer. My challenge to you is that you might ask God for eyes to see his faithfulness and his power with more clarity. That's your new prayer. God, let me see your power and your faithfulness on display that it might inspire me to come back to you for my every need. It's important. This is about persistence. Remember, Luke said, this is about persistence. Don't quit. Pray. Don't give up. We just left Luke 17. Don't forget where we came from. So we just walked out of this idea where Jesus is dealing with the Pharisees and they're skeptical and they say, you keep talking about the kingdom of God. When is that? When? When is the kingdom coming? And what did Jesus say? What was his response? Now. I am the kingdom come. So the kingdom is here now. There is a new kingdom now. And the response that we then get to deal with is he moves directly from the kingdom is now into let's learn why we pray. Jesus has introduced urgency into the disciples' world. This is no longer a future-focused theory of religion. This is a right-now reality. The kingdom is now. So how does that change things for them? The urgency of the kingdom and the urgency of kingdom things does not lie in the future. It's now. Eternities are being sorted out now. Souls are being transformed now. There is no greater urgency than today. The world is on fire, and you and I have a direct line to the fire department of heaven. Now. Scripture says, Jesus says, so what makes you think? What makes you think God won't step in and work justice for his chosen people who continue to cry out for help? Won't he stick up for them Jesus says, your Savior says, I assure you he will. He will not drag his feet. Jesus is inviting, and I would even say demanding, that we become people of prayer, that belief should determine our direction and urgency should fuel our persistence. So let's finish where we started, because you're asking the question now, but what about silence? It feels like he's dragging his feet sometimes. What if I told you silence might just be God's gift to you? What if I told you that silence might be God's gift to you? When my girls were little, they would come into our bedroom at night. Parents have all experienced this, a bad dream. There's something under the bed. The coat on the coat hook ends up looking like the boogeyman. And they come in vulnerable and scared. And they appeal to me, the dad, the father, fix it. Dad, there's something under my bed. Dad, I heard a noise in my room. Dad, I had a bad dream. Can you fix it? Those are prayers from a child to a father. Those are prayers from a trembling heart to a source of security. Those are prayers. Come sort it out and help me feel safe again. And often I would choose to simply hold them. I'd pull them into my bed and I would just hold them. 
Because I understood what they did not need was for me to go and look under their bed. I understood what they needed was to feel the security of the Father's arms. I wasn't ignoring them, but I wasn't answering them. My silence to their cries was because I knew what they needed more than they knew. Just hold, rock back and forth, maybe a whisper, maybe a squeeze. And then eventually, when I knew the time was right, when I could feel that little heart slow down, we go look under the bed. We go peek in the closet. We turn the lights on. But the problem had already been solved by their time in my presence. What if the presence of the Father was the greatest gift we could receive? And what if the presence of the Father was all that you really needed? What if, for my kids, security was in my covering of them and not in their circumstances? What if for you, security that you long for is in the presence of the Father, not in the resolution of your current circumstance? Prepping for this, I read this fourth or fifth century, I don't remember, this old church father, his name was Evagrius the Solitary. I was like, man, I want a, I want a name like that. But put that on my tombstone. Kyle the Solitary. I'm like, that sounds pretty good, except for, you know, I like you guys, so we're going we're gonna to keep doing the way we're doing it. But Evagrius, Evagrius must have had a real interesting life. He wrote this. Do not be distressed if you do not at once receive from God what you ask. He wishes to give you something better, to make you persevere in prayer. For what is better than to enjoy the love of God and be in communion with him? He says, what, what's better than to be in the presence of God and in communion with him? To which the question I would ask coming out of that, you see, silence is an invitation to stay a little longer in God's presence. When you pray and silence is what you get in response, Silence is not a non-answer. Silence is an invitation that you might stay in God's presence for just a little bit longer. And I would remind you there was once a silence like no other, that we are a people of faith because of silence, that silence is what once saved us. On the cross, Scripture said Jesus went like a lamb to the slaughter. It says he did not open his mouth. The silence of Christ is what sets us free. His willingness to go silently to the cross and take on our sins is what redeems us. Silence has saved us. Silence of Jesus, his willingness to go into the void, is why you and I can call ourselves free and redeemed. And so, my friends, we walk through a hostile land. It's true. We never walk alone. So may we be a people of prayer, not because we got better at it or took a class in it. May we be people of prayer because we believe in a good Father who is active on our behalf. May we be a people of persistence, fueled by an urgency that the kingdom is now. May we remember that we have a Savior who intimately knows our affliction, who knows what silence is like 
who said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in the silence hung his head and died. May we be reminded that our battles are best fought on our knees. And may we learn to grow comfortable in the silence, content to be in the arms of a good and gracious God who will never leave us nor forsake us, and who might just be inviting us into silence, into his presence, into his arms, while he works out all things for the good of you who loves him. So maybe you're in a season right now where you have run to the Father and what you've gotten back is nothing. I'd like to reframe that for you that we are children who have crawled up into the Father's arms and he goes, shh, not yet. I'm doing something in you. I'm showing you what the solution is, and it's me. God's silence once saved us. Could it be then that his silence in response to our modern prayers might also be for our benefit? Hi again. Just a reminder to let us know that you're listening by heading over to bgcovenant.org connect. If you're ready to be known, we'd love to know you. And we hope you'll join us soon, every Sunday, in person or online. Thanks for listening.